chapter 1, in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I mean, can you imagine that? Having been able to be an eyewitness of Jesus, the Word that was manifest in the flesh. What an amazing sight to behold. And not only to see Him while He was living the first time, but after He died, to rise again. And to see that, to behold that. And now we're not going to see Him, at least not yet. But you know, as Jesus said to Thomas, you know, you, you, you see because, or you believe because you've seen me. But he had doubt before then, which all the disciples did. It wasn't just him. He was just the last one to find out. And Jesus said, blessed are they which have not seen and have believed. But for he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well, well pleased. Well, I think about that. The baptism of Jesus. And in the people around Him. To hear the Father speak. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. To hear from the God of heaven. To utter those words. And he says, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with Him in the holy mount. Okay, so at the transfiguration, you know, where then they see Elijah and Moses with Jesus. Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before them. And he heard, they heard those words again. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then he goes on, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, is unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's right. Can you please give me a water, bottle of water out of the refrigerator? Don't need it yet, but I may need it later. But here, so the Bible says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Okay, so he was just talking about they were eyewitnesses of the, his majesty. They saw him. This wasn't just some fable they made up. They saw him. You know, in court, you know what was one of the best evidences? Eyewitness testimony. You know, when there's witnesses of it. But here Peter writes, even more sure than our eyewitness. Because people could fabricate a story and say they were eyewitness when they were not. But so he says, hey, even more sure word of prophecy than we have. And that's the scriptures. That the Old Testament scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would suffer, that he would die, that he would be bruised for our iniquities. Not for himself, but for us, he would be bruised. That he would die for our sins. And, and he talks about the scriptures, how no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Thank you. That the scripture wasn't just written by a man just saying, hey, you know, I have this interpretation, this is what I'm going to write down. No, they were moved by the Holy Ghost to write what God would have them to write. And that the scriptures were a more sure word of testimony. Today we're going to be talking about a more pure word. Okay, you know, in the last several weeks, you know, we talked about the history of Greek manuscripts, um, of, of the New Testament, the, the trial of manuscripts, how there's primarily two streams of manuscripts. There's what's called the critical text, which was basically discovered in 1500s, but not um, utilized until the 1800s. 
That's oftentimes called the critical text, the Alexandrian text. Um, manuscripts that are part of that is the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus, um, and also sometimes called the Western text. It's a little bit different, but of the same family. And then there's the traditional text, the text that Christians, the manuscripts that Christians have been using throughout all the centuries. And it's sometimes called the Byzantine text, coming from the Byzantine era, um, the received text, because it's called the text that was received by the churches, Textus Receptus, Greek transliteration to mean the same thing, the received um, text, traditional meaning, it's a text that's always been used traditionally, and then we also talked about how different men gave their lives that we would have the Word of God translated in our English, you know, like John Wycliffe, um, William Tyndale, John Huss, and and many others. And then we also talk about the history of the King James Bible. And then we talk about the history of some of the modern versions. Today, we're going to be looking at more of a comparison. You know, does it, does it really make a difference? Or are the newer versions just a little bit easier to understand, but in a more common language? Um, were there theological differences or um, different um, things that are altered or changed. So that's what we're going to get into today. Last week we talked a little bit about the man John Bergen, who um, at first, well, you know it, they were all part of um, one uh, revised the King James Bible just to update the archaic language, um, some of the words that maybe people didn't use anymore. So they wanted to just update those words. But then under a secret or a vow of secrecy, they were introduced to the Westcott and Hort text, and they weren't supposed to let the public know about this, um, at least not until everything was completed. Um, and I don't know if they were even going to reveal it then. But um, they were given a vow of secrecy, and then there were some men that opposed it, John Bergen being one of them, Frederick um, Schivner being another one, and then Nolan, I forget um, his first name, being another one, where they said, no, you know what, this new text that you're coming out is corrupt. And so we're, I'm going to look at some of the things he said as well again. He said, I more than long, I fairly ache to have done with controversy and to be free to devote myself to the work of inspiration. My apology for bestowing a large portion of my time on textual criticism is David's when he was reproached by his brethren for appearing on the field of battle. Is there not a cause? Okay, so John Bergen's attitude was, you know what, I want to be done with this controversy. You know what, this revised version coming out, I don't really want to be a part of this controversy. I'd rather devote my time to the um, interpretation, to the understanding of the scriptures. But then he says he has to devote this time, and he quotes about David, you know what, is there not a cause? There is a reason, there, there, there is a battle we must face um, at this time. That this isn't an issue he wanted to focus on, but felt compelled to. Regarding Westcott and Hort, who were the ones that compiled the um, critical texts from the critical manuscripts, he said, if all this does not constitute a valid reason for descending into the arena of controversy, it would be, in my judgment, be impossible to indicate an occasion when a Christian soldier is called upon to do so. The rather, because certain of those who from their rank and station in the church ought to be champions of the truth are at this time found to be among his most vigorous assailants. So he recognized, you know what, these were people that were in leadership in church, and they ought to be champions of the truth. But instead, they are altering the word to be something that it is not. And so this is from the 1880s, um, in late 1870s, um, where he's coming out and saying, you know what, these people, they should be champions of the truth, but they're not. They're the opposite. You know, to change words can change meaning. You know, if someone misquotes you, you know, you ever have someone, they said, oh, you said this, and it wasn't really what you said. And you know, sometimes it can make you a little bit upset when someone alters um, what was said. And remember, the Bible says, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. 
and many other scriptures that talk about not removing from His Word. But so here we see, though, every word of God is pure. That it's not just the thoughts, it's not just the meaning of what He was trying to convey, but His words that are pure. So we quoted last week, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. The grass wither, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Promise of preservation of His word. You know, the Bible teaches a verbal inspiration, not thought inspiration, and it also teaches verbal preservation. You know, in Luke 4, 4, it said, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Go ahead. By every word of God. You know, if we don't have every word of God, then how are we going to live by it? You know what interesting of note? You know, if you have an IV or English Standard Version or some of the other new ones, but by every word of God is completely removed. You won't see it there in Luke 4 4. It just says, Man shall not live by bread alone. But you know what? The traditional text, the received text, says, You know, we're to live but by every word of God. Okay, to change words can change meaning. You know, if you have a King James or another version, you know, you can feel free to turn here. I'm going to actually be posting them, though. But it's translated at least nine different ways in nine different versions. And um, there's probably more than that. I just, um, after I got nine, I was like, you know what, that's probably enough to make the point and wanted to move on. But okay, the King James says, Saul reigned one year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, and then it goes on and talks about what happened after two years in the next passages. Uh, but it's in 1 Samuel 13, 1. The ESV says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned two years over Israel. The American Standard Version said, Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and when he had reigned two years over Israel. The New American Standard Bible, Saul was 30 years, so not 40, now it's 30 years old. When he began to reign, and he reigned 42 years over Israel. And then in the New English translation, it says, Saul was 30 years old when he began to reign. He ruled over Israel for 40 years. So now this one's saying 40 years. The one previous to that said 42 years. The one previous to that talked about after he had reigned two years. And the one before that says he lived for one year, then became king. And then the King James reigned one year, and then when he had reigned two years over Israel. The message. Saul was a young man when he began as king. He was king over Israel for many years. Um, the um, complete Jewish Bible. Um, Saul was years old when he began his reign, and he had ruled Israel for two years. That's not very long to be ruling two years. Um, he actually ruled longer than that. It's just like in the King James, it was saying after two years is what happened. The NRSV said Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. The young literal translation says a son of a year is Saul in his reigning. Yea, two years he have reigned over Israel. Okay, so people that want to say that, you know what, different Bible versions don't say different things. Here's just one verse right here, and nine different Bible versions are saying nine different things. Okay, here's um, another passage we see in the ESV, um, the English Standard Version. Okay, Jesus says, you go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast. Okay, Jesus saying, I'm not going to this. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, and he also went up, um, verse 9, I don't have that on here, but it says, When he had said these words unto him, he abode still in Galilee. And um, okay, in the King James, and that was the King James text that I read for verse 9, but we see that, so first in the ESV, we see Jesus saying, I'm not going up to the feast. You go up, I am not going up. But then it says, then he also went up. That would make Jesus a liar. 
where he says, I'm not going up, and then he goes up. But as we read in the King James, it says, Go ye up unto this feast, I go not up yet unto this feast. But when his brethren were gone up, then went he also up unto the feast, after he abode still in Galilee. And so there's a difference. He with the King James, that doesn't make him a liar. He says, I'm not going up yet. And he doesn't. He abides in Galilee, and then he goes up. And so again, to change words can change meaning. You know, you could sometimes have a change of words, and it gives a little bit less clarity. Um, Psalm 101.3, in the ESV says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. The King James says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Okay, the King James is a little bit more clear. You know, it has not just not having anything worthless before our eyes. You know, really, you just drive down the road, you'll see worthless stuff all the time. You can't get around it. But, you know, intentionally, you don't want to set your eyes upon anything that is wicked. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. The NIV says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, the King James says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Okay, so it gives a little bit more clarity. Okay, right now, we're not talking about like any kind of doctrinal error um, is coming from. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But just showing that it's a little bit less clear in some of the new versions. Whereas the King James says it was for us. It wasn't just sacrifice. He was sacrificed for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, the American Standard Version, um, says every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching. Okay, so this is kind of written with a softer tone, and, uh, and that's where part of some of the newer versions were. They wanted to not sound as dogmatic. They wanted to kind of soften any rough edges, so to speak. But here it says every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching. That can give the implication that there are some scriptures in the Bible that are not inspired by God. But that the ones that are inspired of God are profitable. Okay, as the King James says, it gives them more clarity. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. A little bit more clear. Not just saying every scripture that is inspired of God, but that all scripture is inspired um, of God. That's given by inspiration. You know, sometimes you'll just see some strange things too. I just got one thing listed here. Um, but just sometimes you'll see strange things. Okay, the Bible says in the King James, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eat of and wipe of her mouth and say, I have done no wickedness. Okay, talking about this adulterous woman. And before that, talks about those, the eagle in the air and the wind, the serpent upon the rock, and, and um, just kind of, and the ship in the sea. Basically, how they leave no trace. And that is just amazing. You know, it, it happens, but it leaves no trace. And the adulterous woman, it's like she just goes on about her life after committing adultery and eats, wipes her mouth, and says, I have done no wickedness. Wants to claim her innocence. Okay, the New Living Translation says an adulterous woman consumes a man, then wipes her mouth and says, what's wrong with that? So just kind of a little bit strange. Like it makes it sound like she's eating the man and then goes, what's wrong with that? And now I can understand figuratively, okay, adulterers is consuming a man in that sense. But still though, like saying, consumes a man, then wipes her mouth and says, what's wrong with that? And stuff. And that'd be cannibalism there. But so sometimes you'll see, sometimes when the words are translated differently, they can say things that sound a little bit strange. And now I want to talk about how um, to change words can change doctrine. You know, oftentimes the advocates for the new versions, they say, you know what, no major doctrine is changed. Okay, now... When we say this up front, Kate, okay, you can find you know, every Bible doctrine in the newer versions. But it does become weaker or removed from certain passages of Scripture. You know what sometimes they would have, like say for the new versions, they would have one guy translate this book. You know, translate Romans. Another one would translate John. 
And um, there's nothing wrong with translating that. Well, you know the King James. They had their group of men that worked on certain passages, and then they would work on all of them combined in review. But sometimes you would have an unbeliever or a, uni a Unitarian translating one book of the Bible. And so you'll see one book is particularly weak on a doctrinal area, where in another book, it maybe was more a believer, a Christian, and then it you would find the doctrine still intact. But you end up seeing overall in the Bible, to change words can change doctrine. Um, so we see Bible doctrine is weakened, changed, and sometimes denied. And um, again, many influential textual critics were Unitarians and just outright non-believers. George Vance Smith, um, 1816 and 1902, he testified that the textual changes in the English Revised Version and the Westcott Hort Greek New Testament reflected his own theology. You know what? He was not a traditional tr Christian believer. And he loved the Revised Version because it changed the doctrine in different passages. He said this, since the publication of the Revised New Testament, it has been frequently said that the changes of translation which the work contains are of little importance from a doctrinal point of view. In other words, that the great doctrines of popular theology remain unaffected, untouched by the results of the revision. So they're hearing it back then. You know what? None of the changes change any doctrine. He goes on, he goes, any such statement appears to be in the most substantial sense contrary to the facts of the case. And now understand, this was not a Christian believer. This was not just one of those King James fanatics, so-called. This was someone that was a textual critic and also um, was an unbeliever. Um, I believe was Unitarian. And he admits that, you know what? The revised version... It does change doctrinally. He goes on in his book, Texts and Margins of the Revised New Testament, Affecting Theological Doctrine, briefly reviewed. Um, he says, The only instance in the New Testament in which the religious worship or adoration of Christ was apparently implied has been altered by the revision. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow is now read to be in the name. Okay, so one... At the name of Jesus, okay, that means you're directing your worship toward Jesus. In the name is more like saying, okay, by his authority, you know what, we're um, in it. Now, most of the newer modern versions today, they went back to at. But initially, in the revised version, it changed it to in every knee shall bow. It's now be read. Moreover, no alteration of text or of translation will be found anywhere to make up for this loss, as indeed it is well understood that the New Testament contains neither precept nor example which really sanctioned the religious worship of Jesus Christ. Okay, again, that's not me stating this, okay? The Bible does teach we're to worship Jesus Christ. But this is an unbeliever saying that, you know, nowhere in the New Testament does it sanction worshiping of Jesus. And he says, by making this change, we remove that. He goes on. The word atonement disappears from the New Testament. And so do the connected phrases, faith in his blood and for Christ's sake. These so commonly used expressions are shown to be misrepresentations of the force of the original words. Such alterations evidently throw in the most serious doubt upon the important popular doctrine. So he goes, you know what, some of these doctrinal words that are used, they're not used in the revised version. And then some of these phrases, faith in his blood, aren't found in it. He goes on, it is little than to be wondered at that the doctrinal results of the revision should be either lightly estimated or altogether denied. He says, you know what, let's not joke around here. You know, the revised version, it does alter doctrine. You know, one of the examples, you know, in the King James, the Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Okay, the ESV, the NIV both say, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
So you have, through His blood, completely omitted from the new versions. And you know, no wonder that you know it today. They, they have a lot of hymns that remove the songs, um, washing His blood um, through Emmanuel's means. And, and, uh, because they're like, blood is dirty. It's gross. But you know what? We're washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how we're able to get our sins forgiven. Now again, this does not mean you're not going to find other passages in the NIV that does talk about the blood. There are other passages that do. But you do see it weakens here and there. And over several years of weakening, you could end up changing the text where it's not recognizable to the newer generation. They don't see how subtle the changes were made over time. Okay, now the deity of Christ. We're going to look at how that is affected. The deity of Christ, it's important that Jesus is God in the flesh. You know what the NIV says? Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The King James says, and he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. You know, this man on the cross actually recognized him. It wasn't just a man, but it was Lord. The American Standard Version, and you know, all, all the new versions um, besides um, any that claim to follow the traditional text. Um, but all the other modern versions, all modern versions based on the critical Greek text, says basically, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness... He who was manifested in the flesh. Now, Jehovah Witnesses, they had produced their own translation, the New World Translation. And they changed the text to say this as well. Um, when I was trying to witness to my grandmother, who's a Jehovah Witness, um, she would say, oh, no, yours is translated wrong. It, it should say he, not God. Um, and, and it's based on the same Greek text, that the NIV, the ESV, and the others are based on. But you see, the King James, based on the traditional text, is specific that God was manifest in the flesh. And that improves clarity. That shows how doctrine could be altered. Um, my Jehovah Witness grandmother, she said, He who was manifested in the flesh is not talking about God. That is talking about Michael the Archangel. That Michael was he who was manifested in the flesh. And so because of this change, they're able to invent other doctrines. But the Bible very clear. Um, I have this book. I'm going to um, show them all at the end of the session. Um, but um, this book by John Bergen, The Revision Revised. You know what? Written in the 1800s. And he has um, like a chapter dedicated toward why God is the proper translation. And um, originally, he wrote seven pages to a, um, someone else that believed it should say he, and then the other guy responded with 11 pages back and said, no, it should say he. And he goes, well, just so your work doesn't look like it has more evidence or whatever, here's 76 pages to show you, and show you from not just the Greek text, but the Greek church fathers made quotations of this verse. And it said God was manifest in the flesh. And then the Latin church fathers, um, they quoted it also that God was manifest in the flesh. And then also talks about um, different translations into other languages that have it in there. And so that alteration is huge. Philippians 2.6. Okay, some people will bring up Okay, some of the older translations that, um, before King James, the, before the King James Bible. And those um, say, well, you know what, look, those all have variants, they all have differences. And again, the English language is still developing. But you know, we're going to look at the different older versions, okay, older than the King James. And, and you'll see that how similar, how close, how identical they really are compared to when you have a translation based on the Alexandrian um, critical text. Um, Tyndale's Bible in 1528 says, was being in the shape of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God. 
Miles Coverdale, seven years later, was being in the shape of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, so you see the spilling is a lot different than today. Okay, um, the Bishop's Bible in 1568, so um, a little over three decades later, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The Geneva Bible, who being in the form of God, thought it no robbery to be equal with God. And then another thing people will like to bring up is they'll say, well, the King James you use today is not the 1611 edition. And um, it's the 1769 edition. But the 1769 edition was not a revision. It wasn't a new translation. Okay? It was a revising in the sense of updating the spilling um, of the words. But So here's the King James 1611. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Okay, the King James we have today. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And so over and over, all these um, Bible translations, King James and Pre, they're all saying the same thing. Okay, the, the biggest difference you'd see is the word shape and form. Okay, that the older ones use the word shape and stuff. And that didn't actually change the meaning, it, meaning at all, okay? That's just a synonym of um, the same word. And so there's, it is. there's 1769, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So you see that the spilling has been standardized. Equals with one L, form is without the E. Okay, go with the newer versions, based on a critical text, the ESV, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The New American Standard Bible, who, although he assisted in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this appears to be more saying that, even though he's kind of in the form of God, he did not think that being equal with God was something he could grab a hold of. That he didn't believe that he could obtain equality with God. Big difference. Okay, when you see the, man, the, the other translations, King James and Pre, they're all pre-identical. The new ones, they're identical to each other, but that's because they're based on the different Greek texts. And so, but you see, it makes a change doctrinally um, here. That Jesus didn't think he'd be able to become equal with God. In the, in the new versions. Hebrews 1.8. Here's the big one. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Okay, that's a quotation um, from Psalms. Um, it, it, it's written here in Hebrews, but it's a quotation of Psalms. And so this is the Father speaking unto the Son. And he says, Thy throne, O God. Because you know what, skeptics that don't believe Jesus is God will say, well, why did Jesus say, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Okay, well, there's still three distinct persons, but the three of them make one God. And yes, the Son did refer to the Father as his God. But we also see that the Father refers to the Son as God. Thy throne, O God, is forever. But you go with the NWT, the New World Translation. It changes it to, but with reference to the Son, God is your throne forever and ever. Big change. Change of words changes the meaning and it changes the doctrine. Here he's saying to the Son, God is your throne. But you know what? The historical, traditional text, the King James Bible... The, um, the translation before that, say, say, it's, no, it's to the Son, thy throne, O God, is forever. And um, the next verse is also talking about, I didn't put these in here, but about how he is the Lord um, from heaven. Okay, 1 John 5, 7. Oops, let me go back there. 1 John 5, 7. You know, it looks like I um, forgot to actually include it in there. Go ahead and turn you 1 John 5, 7. 
1 John 5, 7. Okay, if you're using the King James Bible, it says this. Um, For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. If you have an NIV, an ESV, you know, it it removes um, the part that says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. This verse is one of the most clearest verses in the Bible about the Trinity. Now, can you find the Trinity in other parts of the Bible? Absolutely. But the clearest of them all, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. Completely removed from the new versions that are based on the critical text. Okay, and and here um, in John 3.13, And no man have ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. The NIV and ESV in deleting the crucial phrase, which is in heaven, destroys the witness of Christ's omnipresence. That Jesus is everywhere at all times. Sure, in his flesh, he maybe is in one location at that time, but in his spirit, being God, he's omnipresent. But you have the new versions remove what is in heaven, showing the omnipresence. Another one, the first man is of the earth, earthly, talking about Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven. The new versions remove the Lord. It just says the second man from, is from heaven. And so they omit the words the Lord, thus removing the blessed and powerful testimony that Jesus Christ is the Lord from heaven. So this isn't just one verse that we've been covering where we see the deity of Christ affected. This, we just looked at several verses, and there's more, but we, we need to move on. Um, believers' baptism. Okay, the Bible says, And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, Thou mayest, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so here we see a clear passage from Scripture, and again, it's the clearest passage, that shows that for someone to get baptized, they must be a believer first. They must believe on Christ. Now, can someone potentially get baptized without being a believer? Yes, that could happen, but that's not the scriptural formula. You know, we're to be saved and then baptized. Okay? And you know what? This would go against infant baptism. It's practiced by the Roman Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, um, other Reformed churches um, that practice infant baptism. And you know, it was really before the Reformation during the Roman Catholic Church, they would have reason to not have this verse in here. It goes against their cardinal doctrine of baptizing babies who have not yet professed faith in Christ. And you see in the NIV and in the newer other ones as well. And as, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and a eunuch said, look, here is water, why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Completely removes verse 37. And in the newer versions, you'll see that it even goes from verse 36 and to verse 38, like they weren't able to count properly. Um, So that's the admission, though, that they removed something. And this is huge um, to remove this. This does change um, the doctrine. Oh, I didn't even have it up there, did I? But there it is there. Just completely remove that. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Remove from new ones. The virgin birth. Anyone think that's an important doctrine? Yeah. The King James says, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. The NIV and the other says, 
Uh, many times I'm just putting one of the translations, but you look at any of them based on a critical test, and it says basically this. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. See, the King James had it right. And the Greek traditional text had it right. That it's Joseph and his mother. Jesus' father is the heavenly father. He didn't have an earthly father. Now, Joseph, you could say, was his stepdad. He was the one that raised him. Okay? But this is really an attack on the virgin birth. Where the new version calls it the child's father and mother. That means he's, Jesus isn't divine. He has both parents as earthly parents. You still don't think this is really that big of a deal here? You know what? Look at the next one. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a son. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What's going to conceive? A virgin's going to conceive. Completely impossible except with God to do the miraculous. The Revised Standard Version says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. A young woman is not necessarily the same thing as a virgin. You know, there were many people in that day, and even today, that they rejected the virgin birth. And so here we see the change makes a big difference. Now, this became so huge that most Christians oppose this, that in most of the newer versions today, they end up putting it back as virgin. Okay, repentance. Another important Bible doctrine. You know what Jesus says, but go ye and learn... Um, what that mean if I will have mercy and not sacrifice for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance okay another one okay they their whole have no need of the physician but they that are sick I came not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance you know that there must be repentance okay not in the sense that okay you know what someone has to quit every sin they're ever going to do and not sin again. No, we all have our flesh, okay? But there needs to be a repentance toward sin and toward God of recognizing, well, I am a sinner and I need Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin. The attitude um, of repentance. The new versions remove to repentance. It just says, come to call the righteous. Or, um, for I am not come to call righteous, but sinners. And that's all it says. It removes to repentance. Why did Jesus come to earth? Okay, and Luke says, For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Didn't I be? Just says, And they went to another village. Completely removing the purpose for Jesus coming. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Matthew 18, 11, For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Completely missing in the new versions. It's just not there. It just goes from verse 10 to verse 12. Romans 8, 1. This one I just noticed this morning. I didn't notice this one before. But Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The King James, in being more clear, says in full, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. You know what that last portion? Completely remove. Forgiveness. Any of you ever find it's hard to do? Forgive someone that's really offended you in a harsh way? Well, you could just remove it with the new Bibles. Yeah, you know, the King James says, But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Okay? Newer versions, it's missing. It's gone. So if you don't feel like you want to forgive someone, just use the NIV. You know what? Then you won't have that command. Just, yeah. I'm just kidding. Okay? Fasting. Okay? Um, these ones are all King James here. Howbeit this kind go of not out, but by prayer and fasting. 
And he said unto him, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. You know, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. You know it, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. 2 Corinthians 6, 5. In stripes and imprisonments and turmoils and labors and watchings and fastings. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty seven in weariness and painfulness and watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often cold and nakedness. Okay, fasting in the new versions in these passages completely remove. It just talks about prayer. Prayer. You know, my wife she's been telling me this year. You know, she goes, "Are you fasting these months?" Last year, you know, challenged the church to fast at least one day each month. And you know, the reason she's asking me if I'm fasting this year um, like that is because she saw how God answered prayer um, through prayer and fasting. Well, if you don't believe in fasting, just use a new Bible, okay? <laughs> okay? Okay, now many times people will ask about the new King James. Okay, by and large, it's not going to be as different as the new versions are. And um, they're going to be pretty close to identical. Um, but sometimes some people ask, still, well, Pastor, why don't you use the New King James? And, you know, here's um, some of the reasons why. Okay? Um, one, okay, this is, um, the new, this is from the preface of the New King James Bible. And it says, for the New King James Version, the text used has the 1967-1977 Stuttgart edition of the Biblia Hebraica, with frequent comparisons being made with the Boomberg edition, the Septuagint, um, Greek version of the Old Testament, and the Latin Vulgate also were consulted. Okay, so the Old Testament, they're saying, you know, we've used a different Hebrew text. The King James was based on the Masoretic Hebrew text. Now, by and large, um, admittingly, they're not as different as you see with the New Testament with the Greek, um, where you have the big major two lines. You do see a better consistency, but it is still based on the te Hebrew text that was not the normal um, used text. Here is um, uh, letter, um, Kirk um, DeVigtro, he was pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Franklin, Massachusetts. And um, he was in one of the Thomas Nelson planning meetings that prepared the way for the New King James. And he said this, Over 20 years ago, I attended a pre-publication meeting of the New King James Version held by the Thomas Nelson people and hosted by the Hackman Bible Bookstore in Allentown, um, PA, I am personal friends with the owners who took great delight in seating me next to the brother of the main translator of the NIV. The meeting was attended by over 300 colleagues, professors, and pastors. At the meeting, we were treated to a slide presentation of the history of the English Bible, and particularly the King James Bible and its several revisions. During the presentation of the New King James Version, the Thomas Nelson representative made a statement which, to the best of my memory, was, We are all educated people here. We would never say this to our people, but we all know that the King James Version is a poor translation based on poor texts. But every attempt to give your people a better Bible has failed. They just won't accept them. So we have gone back and done a revision of the King James Version, a fifth revision. Hopefully it will serve as a transitional bridge to eventually get your people to accept a more accurate Bible. And their definition of a more accurate Bible was one based on a critical text, the Alexandrian text. And so the motive here was, if we come out with the new King James, we'll help those that are sticking to the King James to move to the new King James, and then eventually they'll accept one of the other newer ones. You know what, that was on one of the plans of one of my former pastors. You know what, the church was the King James church, and then at first his thought was, you know what, we'll move to the new King James. That's for the most part based on the traditional text. And then eventually was wanting to move on to some of the newer ones. But that wasn't being told to everybody. 
And then he was wanting me to jump on board with it, but I could not um, go with um, those changes. So a great Christian man. We just disagree uh, on those issues, on that issue. Again, you know what? Just because someone uses a new version doesn't mean they're a heretic, doesn't mean they're not a Christian. Um, but I believe, as we, I'm demonstrating here, trying to demonstrate, that the changes do make a big difference. Some of the comparisons of the new King James. Matthew 7, 14. Okay, the King James says, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Okay, you know what? The gospel is exclusive. Um, it's going to be narrow. You know what? Not everybody is going to heaven. Not everybody's going to get saved. And so it's narrow. Now, is salvation hard? No. You know, it's, it's not based upon our works. It's based upon faith. That we're saved by grace through faith. It's no hard work on our part. We just m- must receive and believe that Jesus is who He said He was. The New King James changes it to, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. But it's not difficult. Okay, um, Hebrews 2.16. Um, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Okay, so that Jesus became flesh. Okay, he, he didn't become an angel. Okay, he wasn't Michael the archangel, as my Jehovah Witness grandmother said. But he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He became a man. Okay. Okay, the New King James says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So it's a difference. Like saying, you know, he doesn't give help to angels, but he gives help to man. And, um, but, you know, God being the creator of all his creation, I don't see why he would not give aid or would not help um, the angels, so to speak. But as King James says, he took on the nature, not of angels, but of man. Okay, another one, Hebrews 3.16. For some, when they had heard and did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Okay, you know, when they came at, were coming out of Egypt under Moses... The leadership, which we're almost done here, um, they, um, most of them rebelled. They, were, they, they complained, they murmured. But not all of them did. We see Joshua and Caleb, they were faithful um, to, um, to go and they believed. And so the King James says, help it, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Okay? Not all of them um, were provoking. Okay? The New King James says, For who haven't heard rebelled, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses. So here is a difference in meaning. Okay, now this may not be a great big doctrinal um, thing, but this is just an example of a meaning um, being changed. And um, there's another one. Um, I don't have it here. I don't remember if it was the New King James or if it was the other ones. But where the Bible talks about um, a man came and he worshipped Jesus. It changes it to just kneeled before Jesus. Now when we worship, we ought to be kneeling as well. But worship is more clear than just kneeling. Let's see. Stop turning. There we go. I wonder if I made a bunch of duplicates. Another one, I didn't um, get this in here, but um, you'll see um, in, in the Bible, the Bible talks about how Jesus is the bright and morning star. You know, in the NIV, it calls Lucifer the bright and morning star. You know, it given the title to Satan that belongs to Jesus. These verses here, all of these, they're pretty much removed from every newer version today that's based on the critical text. Um, I'm not going to repeat all of these, but we covered a few of them. We didn't get to all of them. Uh, Mark 9.44 is where it talks about where they're um, warm, die of not. You know, talking about those that are in hell. And um, there's 
a um, bunch of other ones. I could give you a copy of this list. The um, Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Okay, you know, we have a more sure word of prophecy, okay, the word of God. We want to make sure the word of God is pure, okay, that it's not altered, that it's not changed. Um, not mean it can't be translated. It can be translated. The Bible talks about publishing the word among all nations, but not changing the words. Ian Paisley is a Presbyterian um, minister um, in Ireland, and he said this, I believe the Bible is um, the ver- verbally inspired word of the living God. And because the authorized version is a faithful English translation of the original Hebrew of the Old Testament and the original Greek of the New Testament, it is the very word of God in my mother tongue. Being a translation does not alter one iota of its integrity, inerrancy, and infallibility is God's word. And so, you know, praise God for a translation. And we want to translate the word of God in other languages as much as we can. But you know what? You see the enemies. Okay? You saw Vance Smith that we were mentioning earlier. He recognized the revised version made changes doctrinally. And then over the years, you just keep having them change here and there. Then if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You don't have a pure word to go to um, to show your case. Some books on the issue. The, revise, um, the, re, the revision revised. Um, they call it that, the revision revised, because the revision ended up not being what it was supposed to be. It was just supposed to be updating of some of the old words, but ended up being a total different, trend, um, different text. Um, the last 12 verses of Mark, vindicated against recent critical objectors and established. Um, a fatal blow to the Vatican and Sinai manuscripts, written by John Bergen as well. Um, you, what you'll often see in the modern versions they know that 12 verses in Mark, that would be a lot to remove. Okay? If they remove all that, they knew Christians would recognize that. So what they usually do is they usually include it, but they put a footnote saying, we don't think the best manuscripts contain it. And they remove it, which removes the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And so he shows that historically, through the traditional text, church fodder quotes, um, and then on, he shows that the last 12 verses of Mark do belong in there. Another book by him, the traditional text of the Holy Gospels, the causes of the corruption of the traditional text of the Holy Gospels. Another one by David Sorensen, Touch Not the Unclean Thing, the Text Issue and Separation. And then these are two of my favorites. Um, this is by Ian Paisley, who the quote comes from. My plea for the old sword, the English authorized version. And um, very, very good book, not too long. And one book that's very, um, um, very easy to understand. You know, talking about all these different names, the Vaticanus, the Sinaiticus, all those, all those names could get confusing to someone that's newly studying this out. And in this book, not too big of a book, but it takes an issue a complicated issue and makes it easy to be understood. Um, many times, like on some of the things that are written about, they'll have a little note that gives a little bit of explanation of the differences. So, a more sure word, which Bible can you trust by R.B. Owet? I was going to try to see if he could come preach for our pastor's fellowship meeting in November, but it looks like he's going to be preaching at another church um, around that time frame. And so, Good books. Um, if you have any questions, you can talk to me in the foyer. Um, usually we do them in here, but we're already late. So just some announcements. Um, in two weeks, we're going to do our quarterly business meeting. Um, it's part of the um, Sunday school hour. And it's because usually we do on a Wednesday night, but we're doing our marriage recharge on Wednesday nights. And so we're going to just do it. It's a brief part of our Sunday school hour. We'll do our business meeting. This Wednesday, okay, we're doing our marriage recharge, and the subject is on forgiveness. You know, many times couples have things that happen, and man, it could be hard to forgive. And you know, we're going to be talking about that this Wednesday. And next week, during the Sunday school hour, for Bill Bramwitt in the back over there, he's going to be teaching on a very interesting subject. 
Um, you, know, you know, in the Bible, the thief on the cross, he said, or Jesus says to him, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Well, Jesus wasn't going to heaven right away. We see that um, he went to the heart of the earth. He was dead for three days. But he said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And, that, and then we see when Jesus resurrected, there were others from the grave that resurrected as well. And you know what, sometimes people wonder, you know, okay, where did Old Testament saints go um, that were believers on Jehovah, on the Messiah to come? You know, where did they go? Because Jesus said, no man have ascended to heaven except for the Son of Man um, that came from heaven. And so he's going to be teaching about that, about how in the heart of the earth, um, so to speak, there's a place that's called hell, okay, um, the Greek transliteration be Hades, and then the other part was paradise. And that's where the Old Testament saints would have been before Christ died and rose again. And so, very fascinating study. Um, Barb Bramlett's going to be teaching that next week during the Sunday school hour. So come if you're able to. Just get up earlier and um, make it here. It'll be a good study. And there'll be a copy, a printout for you to have as well. And then today, um, at 4 o'clock, right, Kate? Um, baby shower um, for Stacy. Um, and that's going to be here at the church in the fellowship hall. Um, they didn't come to church today. Just um, some um, their kids are sick. But um, he'll be watching the kids at the baby shower. And she'll be able to um, come um, for the baby shower. So 4 o'clock. Any details, see my wife. God bless you. Shake hands. Fellowship. Be friendly.